The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 27 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them, both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, summer's at an end, weather is turning cold and grey, and my birthday is one week from when this episode drops. Uh, what's up with you, Peter? Uh, not that much, really. As you mentioned, there, this summer has, has come and gone. Um, I, I saw uh, a quite an interesting mini-documentary docu- that uh, one of the regional museums here in Sweden had put up uh, about uh, tree felling. Uh, they, ah. they compared, uh, they, they compared the, the, the logging techniques, basically, uh, or, or they tried out, tried out medieval logging techniques, uh, felling a tree with, with just an axe, which is quite impressive because it's a lot harder than doing it with an axe and a saw. Saws are really useful. Um, but the interesting thing, uh, as, as I keep finding uh, these examples, is that uh, the same basic principle of, of how you fell a tree and the kind of techniques you use uh, are, are still basically the same uh, as they are today. It's just that now we use chainsaws. Um, and my, my girlfriend actually did a, a chainsawing course uh, this spring, uh, and, and I uh, snook a peek at her notes, and, and it's, it's basically the same thing. You, uh, you, you cut kind of a um, wedge-shape um, part to, to aim where you want the tree to go when it uh, uh, falls down, uh, and then you cut from the other side uh, into the tree, uh, and then you use various techniques, uh, but it's. I, I was really impressed when I saw the the, uh, the documentary because it's they do exactly the same thing basically, just using an axe instead of a chainsaw. Uh, so yeah, that's those are the things that I pick up on that I found. Yeah, exactly. If you want to know how nerdy we are, we are the kind of people who get excited yeah. about a documentary on felling trees. Yeah. Um, also, for those of you who haven't uh, spotted it or who isn't on our Facebook, uh, we've put up our first Patreon exclusive content, which in this case is Peter trying to uh, look into lighting a fire in uh, in a more uh, medieval way. And there are both pictures and audio. So if you're interested in that, pop by our Patreon and give us a little support. We are hoping to expand the amount of additional content on our Patreon. Anyway, today's book is the last in the Ashen line, Ashen Cults, written by Justin Achille and Steve Kenson and developed by Philippe Arbol. We're starting with the cover, and I really, really like this one. It's got a nice contrast of colors versus the black. The book that the character on the front is holding has claps on it, which is 100% appropriate for the time. And I think it really gives off a great vibe. Um, so I'm really happy with this cover. Yeah, the the front cover uh, or, or the, the front artwork I, I really like. Uh, it it has one of those uh, stained glass backgrounds that that we both enjoy, and uh, the the robe that the character is wearing uh, is is heavily embroidered and, and decorated, but but not in a uh, fantasy cloak kind of way, which which I also like. So yeah, it's it's a nice uh, nice piece to to kind of set the mood. Yeah. So the interior art, while there were no pieces that really wowed me, I think this book has some of the consistently best art of the books that we have seen just in, what shall we say, general overall quality. There was nothing that seemed uh, gratuitous, which is really nice considering the subject of this book. So just all around uh, good quality. I especially like the picture of the Nosferatu on page 64, because this is clearly an inhuman being, but we don't have the usual... uh, Count Orlock look. Yeah. Uh, I think that the p- pictures here just really help set the mood for the book. So I, I really like the interior art. 
I I agree about the the Nosferatu on, on page sixty four, and and as you mentioned, it's it's someone who is quite inhuman, but it's it's not the kind of uh, space elf look that <laughs> that a lot of them have. Uh, but a lot of the rest of the art is. Uh, it's it's not very historical. Uh, you have a guy on page let me just uh, on page seven who's supposed to be a monk and he's uh, first of all he's left-handed, which would be a big no-no in a normal monastery. But if it's a if it's a cult monastery, then then you can explain it away with him being some kind of of infernal cult cultist or something. Uh, but he also wears very modern glasses. Uh, oh yeah, definitely. Which, that one. That one's a bit problematic. Yeah, and and there are a few other where that just looks very modern. Uh, there's um, speaking of, I, I wouldn't call it problematic, but there is one illustration where a I don't know if it's supposed to be a victim or a willing willing participant, but uh, someone someone is wearing a ball gag. Uh, yeah, they they uh, they wouldn't have those. Back no, then. at least not. Uh, from we what, what my research has, has found out, but but yeah, it's um, I don't know the the Nosferatu character has a really good portrait, and some of the other has as well. But uh, many of them just looks kind of of bland, and uh, it's the same problem we've had before: is that it, it it's nothing really about him that says Dark Ages or medieval times. It's more of a generic. Uh, generic uh, portrait basically uh, and there are also a few of, of the kind of classical uh, cultists uh, wearing just long robes with hoods and and uh, weird accessories uh, or, or weird like symbols painted on their foreheads and and those yeah they, they weren't really my my cup of tea uh, but but yeah, most of the others are uh, at least quite uh, fitting for the mood. Uh, as you mentioned, there's nothing that's too gratuitous, even though the uh, topic at sometimes uh, is is rather severe. Uh, but uh, it's yeah, it's it's a bit hit and miss for me, to be perfectly honest. Okay, <clears throat> so one short note is that the info page says that the book is set in 1215, which I found a bit odd since there's almost no sort of what you would say real world events or things like that. It's, it's, it's not that it had to be tied down to a specific date. It does talk about the after effects of the Fourth Crusade, but mm. um, I thought it, it didn't really need to specify a date, but they say that it is because they're advancing the timeline yeah. through these last books. Uh, but it just felt like it came out of nowhere, and I was like, well, okay. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we start off with an intro story, and for once, I kind of liked it. Uh, we see the machinations of the canines through mortal eyes in a way that makes them really inhuman. Uh, so... It, it somehow it, it grabbed me more than many of the other intro stories have. Uh, one note is that the narrator talks about salt, um, and he's right in saying that it's needed to keep meat from spoiling, but calling it a spice and saying people season their food with it, I, I would say that's probably taking it a bit too far, because uh, people in the Middle Ages didn't really consider salt a spice. Uh, they considered it a preservative, a way of, of preserving meats, uh, and salting food was rarely about the taste. In fact, since salt, salt was the mark of meat that wasn't fresh, it could actually be seen as a bit low class to have meat taste of salt, because it showed that you couldn't afford fresh meat. Um, of course, that wasn't always the, um, the case, but I, I, I think that it overstates uh, salt as being uh, a taste thing, but but other than that, I think it's a good story that helps set the um, the sort of mood for the rest of the book. Yeah, I I agree with the uh, with your assessment of the story. It's 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 not really the best, but it has kind of a fun twist in the end that kind of shows how how messed up and how manipulative uh, the the canines can be. Uh, as for salts, it it's I don't know. It kind of depends on on where and when you are, because at some points it's. Uh, it's really a show of wealth, since the the reason why salt was so important was, as you mentioned, it it's it's a preservative. It was one of the few ways you had to preserve it, uh, and so it was um, it was quite expensive at times. 
uh, it's also where we got get the word salary from uh, um, and uh, soldier and uh, soldat in basically all the Germanic uh, languages uh, but but at the same time it could be seen as like having having a, a not a salt shaker but but a, a salt cup on your on your feasting table it's kind of like look just throw some of this on on the food I'm so rich that I can basically just use this quite important or necessary thing just just as something you add to the food uh, so so it's yeah it's it's like having it having a dried very salty meat yeah that's that's definitely a sign of, of uh, poverty uh, but at the same time it could also be um, or, or salting your meal rather not necessarily salting your your or having a salted meat but salting your your meal at the table could be seen as a sign of wealth or yeah it? yeah salt <clears throat> salt was something that would have been uh, put on later yeah. like you said uh, rather than something that was used in cooking you would never have let's say a, a cook at a castle add salt to something that he was cooking while it was cooking that was something that was done afterwards and obviously um there would be a lot of of, of other spices um so it's it you're, you're right in that it's it's it, it differs a bit in how it's used yeah um, so interestingly, we don't get any introduction, you know, the usual how to use this book. Um, I think it's because it's a rather short book anyway, and it's <clears throat> it's kind of obvious what the book is about. Yeah. So they don't need the usual intro, and they probably also didn't really have much in the way of um, suggested reading and stuff like that. Um, and because of that, it's straight into chapter one. Uh, this chapter is done in character, but relatively subtly, it's it's framed as letters from a sire to child, instructing the child on cults and and how to build and maintain them. So, uh, for being an in-character piece, I uh, I liked it a lot more than I've done a lot of other in-character pieces. The information given here seems pretty basic and straightforward, but there are a few gems, such as mentioning that from a certain perspective the knightly orders can be considered cults yeah. and i never thought of that but but that actually makes sense you know the 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 way the knightly orders go about their yeah. business they are sort of cult like yeah yeah it's and and it's it's quite interesting because and and of course for for obvious legal reasons i i don't condone anyone doing this but but this entire book is basically a handbook in how you make a cult because a lot of yeah. these things if if we look at actual cults or or rather sects i would say there's there's a difference uh, between cults and sects um and as i've been taught a cult is more of a religious thing as you have the and then men- they mentioned them the dionysian cult and you have mm. um, different cults basically all over the world but but a sect is more just yeah the, the manson had a sect uh, the catholic church had a cult for to to make a uh, an exaggerated comparison but but yeah there's if if you look at the psychology behind cults and sects and how they work and function it's or a, or a modern equivalent would probably be conspiracy theories <laughs> this is basically how you do it uh, so yeah um so so I I would have imagined if if this book would have come out in in like the middle of of the satanic panic or anything like that then it would probably be almost burnt at the stake. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that, that that I think that's a general problem with uh, or not problem but a general thing with with this vampire. I mean imagining this coming out at the height of the satanic panic and yeah. you know you're playing vampires. Yeah, exactly. Uh but but yeah, as you mentioned there there's there's a lot of of things like the monastery or monastic orders as well but night orders also that could be uh, interpreted as cults and and what's kind of interesting and they do go over it a bit and it's like cults were really a, a thing like small local cults you you had them all over uh, Europe and probably other parts of the world as well where where like like if if something happened then someone would be venerated as as kind of a holy person and in the cases where it gets famous enough, that's basically when you get saints. Uh, so in, in Sweden, we have one of these. We actually only have one official canonized saint, and, and that is Saint, uh, saint Bridget um, Birgitta the Holy. Uh, yeah. She's the only one canonized by, by the Catholic Church. But we have 
uh, like the the local. Um, I don't know if he's actually considered a patron saint, but but uh, there was a king that was murdered here in Sweden, and uh, he not by the Danes for once, but but by a rival, <laughs> uh, but, but by a rival faction, uh, and it said that where um, uh, where his head fell. Uh, a spring uh, uh, sprung from the ground, uh, and the, the, the actual spring is still around, and it's just next to the Uppsala Cathedral. Uh, and of course, it was he was especially holy because he was murdered just when he was uh, exiting uh, the church, having attended mass. Uh, but he's like everyone. If if you ask a Swedish person if they think that they, they obviously not worship him, but like uh, his name is. Uh, Eric the Holy and like yeah Eric the Holy he's a saint right and people would just assume that he is because yeah. his cult became so big but he's not actually canonized uh, and he's I think he's the patron saint of, of Stockholm as well which is weird because he doesn't really have anything to do with Stockholm but since he was so important when the capital of Sweden moved from Uppsala to Stockholm he basically followed along um, and, and you could probably find these uh, these kind of, of small uh, cults all over the place. Yeah, local saints were a very big thing. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of people probably doesn't know about the Middle Ages is that because it was so decentralized and there wasn't much in the way of communication uh, on a grand scale, local saints often sprang up either from just the locals deciding, okay, this guy must be a saint, or from a local priest or even bishop deciding that someone had been so holy that, you know, they, they deserve to be a saint. And then you could apply to the Vatican to have someone come by and investigate whether or not that person should be a saint. But the local people, not knowing about this procedure, which could often be a relatively lengthy procedure, would just immediately start worshipping the person as a saint, especially because it was someone local, so it was someone who appealed to them, um, and so that is that's one area where you could have what might be considered like an acceptable cult within uh, Catholic Europe is local uh, veneration of a saint, and yeah. that's something that a vampire would would be able to um, to use yeah, to, to influence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, just just as another example of of. Uh, local saints uh, gaining uh, popularity. Uh, Joan of Arc, uh, she wasn't actually canonized until 1920, yeah. almost 500 years. And and like she's she she's been the, the patron saint of of all of France for for basically from even when she was alive almost. So uh, so so yeah, you, as you say, it could be a really lengthy pro- process in some cases. Uh, yep. Um, we we also get something about how each clan approach cults, and all of this uh, chapter, especially the last one, how uh, each clan approach cults, it feels really basic and introductory. There was very little here that made me go, hmm, hadn't thought about that, or, oh, I didn't know that. Um, the, the main thing was actually the idea of approaching um, knightly orders as cults. However, I can definitely definitely see this as being a great resource uh, to a player who wants their character to lead a cult or a storyteller who wants a cult to be a part of the game uh, but if they're unsure about how to go about it um, so it, it for me it feels like okay if if you don't really have any ideas about how to approach this whole cult thing then then this is the chapter for you to read yeah I uh, I, I kind of agree that there's a lot of things that that are almost obvious but at the same time if if you're like a new storyteller or just picking up the idea of, of hey let's let's start a cult how do we do it uh, then then it's it's actually quite useful uh, and I, I I really like 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 they basically go over everything like why do you want to start a cult uh, as not not for a player perspective but from a character perspective is it because you want power do you need companionship do you want blood uh do do you feel a a duty to something and um and then also like just like how do you gather the first followers and everything and and like i said it's it's really a handbook in in building a cult uh 
and uh, so so yeah it's it it might be kind of superfluous if you already thought about this but at the same time uh it's it's a really nice uh just checklist checklist basically uh, yeah. When when it comes to the cults of the clan, what I what I really like was was that they have um, a section on how uh, the blood bond or the blood oath uh, kind of differs from clan to clan. Uh, oh and, yeah. And of course that could be used as as um, it, it you could use it as as optional. It, it doesn't have to be mandatory. But I kind of like the idea that. Uh, that the Bruja blood bond is more about camaraderie, while uh, something else is is basically just pure submission. Uh, like yeah, and the Smish blood bond. Yeah, the Smish blood yeah. bond allows you to uh, use vicissitude easier yeah. on the people that are blood bonded to yeah. you. And yeah, I, I think I think you're right in that this this is like this chapter really feels like um, something for a novice uh, storyteller or uh, a player who is either new or at least new to the whole um, political and social aspect. Uh, if if you're used to playing, uh, let's say, a game where... Uh, I don't want to... It's a stereotype, but but your, your standard high fantasy Dungeons & Dragons game, you're very rarely in a position where you're starting up cults and things like that. So you may not really have thought yeah, about it yeah. and have an idea about it. So I, I think it's because I've played vampire so long that yeah. the idea of this whole social manipulation thing uh, kind of, of, of is ingrained in me. Mm. Um, but at the same time, if, if it's not something that you've ever tried before, then it, it is a very helpful chapter. Um, yeah, it's, it's sorry, also, more... no, no, I was just saying that, that I also like that, that they managed to find, they give you examples of, of what kind of, of cults would be fitting for, uh, for the different clans. So uh, Nosferatu uh, are supposed to be involved with, with the Masons and Freemasons, uh, which, which kind of makes sense because then they can influence people to, or manipulate them to, to build catacombs for them to hide around in, um, yeah. And and I'm also thinking like for for a gangrel uh, up in in Scandinavia or in Sweden where we have um, stories about the um, the the skogsråd and uh, yeah. which which is basically a, a a lady running around in the forest who could help you or could mess with you. Uh, sometimes she could like uh, help you find things that was lost. Uh, but I'm, I'm mostly thinking about, especially having read the intro story, which is about uh, a cult in a mine. Uh, we have in in Swedish in Swedish mining culture, I think you would say, uh, there is the story about the the lady of the mine, uh, and she was kind of like the spirit of the mountain, kind of, and and you would uh, you would kind of tell her that now I'm entering the mine, and and uh, sorry for disturbing you, uh, and if you didn't kind of like sacrifice a coin or something to her or warned her she could cause cave-ins uh, or, or the, the mine being flooded or you getting lost. And and that really sounds like uh, not necessarily a gamble, but just as a vampire hiding in a cave uh, and um, rewarding uh, the miners with like, yeah, here's here's some uh, a good vein of ore, go there. But if you go deeper in where I have my sanctum, I will kill you all. Uh, so you, you you have a lot of opportunities to uh, to kind of use the local um, myths and and folklore to to kind of uh, exploit that when both both as a as a player or a storyteller or or as an actual vampire uh, using those myths to build your cult. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so chapter two gives us some cult examples, starting with two cults that have mortal membership. The cult of Mithras in Britain and the Masons of Marseille in Marseille. Yeah. Uh, both of them are really interesting and well presented, though it is unfortunate that uh, the first two cults they presented this chapter both prohibit female membership. I yeah. thought that was a bit... Uh, yeah. uh, and in the case of the Masons, that's actually not 100% accurate because while it was rare, women could become masters in a craft and if a guild member uh, died, it was possible for their wife to mm. take over their guild membership. Uh, for example, if you have, say, a cooper, a barrel maker. Yeah. Uh, and his wife has been helping him make barrels and may, might even have um, 
have uh, shown their work to the level where they uh, have been declared journeyman or something like that, or even a master, then there are, it is rare, but there are examples of women gaining guild membership either on their own uh, account or because their husband died. So I think they could have included uh, women in, in the Masons. With with Mithras, um, I think it's it's unfortunate, but on the other hand, uh, I've I've always kind of had a, a thing against Mithras, and this just makes his his cult that much more uh, annoying that that they are misogynists. <laughs> and and at the same time, I it, it kind of doesn't make any sense because if if there's one place that you actually had quite fierce where warrior women, it was the pagan British Isles because you had Bodisha apologies for the pronunciation uh, basically being one of worst enemies of the Roman Empire so I I like if you want to change that it, it would make sense it wouldn't yeah mess things you up. have the you have the legend of, of I think it's pronounced Skaya uh, who yeah. was yeah. the woman that trained was it Cahulan she trained uh, one of the big legendary yeah, think, warriors yeah. And I think it's in in some legends she's even mentioned as being a vampire or something like that. Oh. So yeah, like you said, there there are some options there for bringing for bringing women in to this all all boys macho club. Yeah. But other than that, I I think they're very well presented both of these of these cults. Yeah, I I agree. I I like the fact, and it's it goes through all of the cults that you have a uh, like the presentation. Uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be in character anymore, but we we don't really get the kind of letter format. All of them are which the, the letters written in character all uh, uh, all all uh, um, start with greetings, my child, which got really annoying after a while. So yeah, and, and I think I don't know if they did it on purpose or they just noticed it themselves. But the, then then one of the last letters is. Uh, felicitations, my child. Instead, just just to inspect things. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the the presentation is uh, is really nice. Uh, so you, you have basic information of the cults, uh, and then you have a, a small uh, or sometimes actually quite large sidebar with some story seeds, uh, which gives good ideas on on yeah basically what you can build a story around, which which I always like, even though the quality was kind of varied. But yeah, it's it's always it doesn't hurt really. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the main reasons to buy these books is to have something to to use in in games. So all, always nice with the story seeds. I would then go on to Canine Cults, and uh, these these two are really really good. And I, it's something that uh, I think you can get a lot of mileage out of in a game. Uh, we have the Cappadocian followers of Lazarus and the Tremere House of Goatrix, uh, both of which contain pretty cool story options. One major mistake, however, is the NPC Johannes of uh, Voringen. It's mentioned that his father was a wealthy Hanseatic merchant. Yeah. Uh, Johannes was embraced in 1113, yep. and the beginning of the Hanseatic League was in 1241, yep. while Cologne, which is the city that the town of Warringen is close to, didn't join the Hanse until 1282. Yep. <laughs> but other than that, I like these two, though they might be a bit narrow in scope, but if you're either involving the Cappadocians or the Tremere or something around this. So, for example, the, the followers of Lazarus, they're interested in this whole idea of bringing the dead back to life, given the name of, of yeah. the vampire that they follow. You can you can definitely involve these both these cults in ways that I think could be rather interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. And I especially like how uh, they, they really convey... What an absolute asshole Goratrix is, uh, <laughs> yeah. which which I think uh, he he kind of deserves it. And I'm not saying that he's uh, that it's a it's a bad character that it's written badly, but it's it, he's just one of those classical fictional assholes. Uh, and and I really like the fact that that it conveys and and how he really likes basically just yeah we at the top we should just utterly dominate the anyone below us because fuck them uh, and yeah and i really like that yeah the thing is it's it's easy to write an asshole it's harder to write an asshole where as you said he he seems realistic while at the same time being very very dislikable because there is a tendency in fiction when you're writing uh an asshole 
to go a bit over the top and and with this guy it's made in a way like you can basically you can imagine this person as a real person meeting him and thinking holy crap that guy is a complete and utter prick yeah and and not just making realistic uh, assholes but but interesting ones because there are so many like b and c movie villains which which is just basically the ha 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 i'm going to kick puppies and burn down orphanages now and and that gets boring after a while but but goratrix he he knows where to stick it i guess i don't know <laughs> that, that one got away from me <laughs> so we end with a few examples of small cults. We have Calamina's Forsaken, the Carnaval Moriendi, and the Drowned Monastery. So we get vampires in monasteries. Yeah, yeah. We, that was we, nice. <laughs> yeah, we actually did it before. I forgot to mention, but during the t- uh, Toreador section on on their kind of uh, clan uh, clan cults, they actually mention a, a Toreador having a. a cult in a monastery and i'm just thinking that man that that one had to like evict a bunch of other vampires before he said <laughs> uh, i just imagine this toreador going into the monastery i have a coming and, and just like yes and then <laughs> going all right i am going to make this my cult <clears throat> uh, i i'm actually a vampire oh all right well perhaps the two of us could uh, run this monastery and then another one uh, i'm actually also a vampire and then all of them just looking around going hang on anybody here not a vampire and then there's just one guy raising his hand and everybody else looking around yeah, yeah. well this is embarrassing mm. yeah um, but, anyway but but yeah they, sorry you have the you have the of course you have the um, monastic vampire cult and and the, the carnival moriandi the carnival of of death or of the dead or of dying it's I, I, I kind of chuckle when I read it because, like, yeah, of course you're going to have a, a, a vampiric, over uh, otherworldly, undead carnival of, of freaks because you, that's, that's... It's a it's a trope. Yeah, it's a trope. And it, it was it was kind of nicely well done here. It, uh, I, I don't know if, if it was that interesting, but I, I still like the fact that they kind of made the effort to, to throwing it in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a staple of both the gothic horror and, and just uh, horror in general, the, the, the evil carnival, yeah. the monster clown, all of these things. Um, it did have a bit of a fantasy feel to it, or at least it felt like something that be more appropriate a few centuries into the future but i can see why they include it just because it works yeah um i really like calamina's forsaken uh it's led by two free ghouls whose sire was a character in bitter crusade and, and then he died and they are fanatic bogomils which is uh the bogomils were declared heretics and they were they their belief system was related to the cathars they were dualists as well um, and so they have this small cult that hunt vampires and they say it, that it's to destroy evil, but they also take blood from the vampires that they capture to maintain their status as ghouls. Yeah. And I just love the way they try to morally and religiously justify their actions, like the hypocrisy yeah. uh, and the logical hoops they try to jump through here is just beautiful. I really love the way that this is, is, this is portrayed yeah. because... It, it gives you inspiration for how you can make characters that are utter hypocrites but try to justify it. Yeah, exactly. And and it, it kind of reminds me because of... And, and I think the intent is there is, is that it kind of reminds me of how uh, people who are really into uh, a drug addiction or, or any kind of addiction yeah. always kind of try to justify that, that what they're doing, like... But oh, I'm only gambling away the money that I don't need, and I can always win it back. And and it's it's the same kind of desperation almost that that a couple of ghouls who uh, they probably realize that well we need this to survive, otherwise we're just gonna die because we're too old. Uh, and uh, or and also just that it's 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 a really cool drug uh, for them. Uh, so so they yeah they have this desperation and they try to. Uh, they, they, they try to to justify and uh, and basically get their fix, uh, which again is it's a quite a cool twist and and you can uh, like if you want to play into the whole gothic horror aspect of it, uh, I think there's at least one uh, I don't know if it's H.P. Lovecraft but but basically a story where um, 
or it might be older than him, but but where you have someone who's who desperately needs their elixir of life, and if they don't get it, they just wither away into a, a corpse. Uh, and so you could use it this um, that kind of imagery um, if if you include uh, ghouls who who die, uh, and and that kind of feel to the story that no, I I need this, otherwise I'm just gonna get fucked up. Uh, yeah. The Drowned Monastery, one thing that I really love about it is we have an out-and-out out evil cult. I mean, this is yeah. this is uh, demon worship, uh, but it manages to be presented in a very interesting way. And this whole idea of a, of a monastery that got flooded, um, it, it creates a nice visual thing. Like, um, if you want to have a situation where the, the player characters can be as close to heroic as vampires can be, they can go out and destroy this evil cult and just the uh, a ruined, semi-flooded monastery is just a great setting for it. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, and it, it kind of goes back to, to what I mentioned about um, the, the Tremere uh, hideout uh, dungeon book that we did. Uh, it, it's, it's, it, it can be really cool for a kind of, of almost dungeon crawly uh, story if, if that's what you want and um, thinking about it a lot of these, especially the, the weirder kind of cults they, they actually really fit in into kind of that part of, of Eastern Europe or, or at least any kind of fringe of Europe, like have this be uh, kind of a feel of, of the edge of civilization and, and you, you, you have this uh, foreboding monastery on, on this dead lake in the middle of, of a, uh, a forest somewhere uh, kind of like, is it, is it called The Keep, that movie where, where it's a bunch of, of German soldiers uh, who end up being slaughtered by, by something in uh, in a very ancient castle in Eastern Europe. It's. I, uh, I, I'm not sure. I haven't actually seen it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's it's one of those. Cults Sounds like that, something I want to see. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but yeah, you you get this kind of and and of course you can have the the carnival of the dead just around the corner and uh, so so yeah, there's there's a lot of this kind of of classical. Um, Unfortunately, almost uh, always set in, in Eastern Europe because that's kind of exotic. But but it's this this almost alien feel to it. Um, on on yeah. the other hand, as just as a nitpick on on uh, uh, historical note, that uh, one of the characters in uh, in the Carnival of of the Dead, uh, Simon Rigaud, uh, he's it mentioned that he uh, he was a Parisian who would uh, who pulled a cart. Uh, where people would play the corpses, uh, would place the corpses of those who had su- succumbed to the plague. Uh, since he was embraced in 1116, he would basically be out of work because, yeah, you did have diseases and plagues, but but not like plague plagues. The plague. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Not the plague. Uh, so, yeah. but but I'm I'm guessing that the, the kind of imagery uh, of of someone pulling a corpse cart uh, through a muddy city it's it's one of those uh, tropes that we probably can't get rid of in a hurry so yeah though though uh, monty python ruined it uh, a little bit with bring out your dead you will be soon yeah. um sorry anyway uh just one one thing with with or rather two things with the um with the monastery it says that it's it's uh, situated in lake tutten the lake of death um, and and my knowledge of German says uh, no, that's that's not quite right. But, yeah, yeah I, well, not 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 that important. And then uh, one thing I want to sound you out on, and actually also our listeners. So uh, please leave a comment about this. The main uh, character in the monastery cult is a Nosferatu who made a deal to get his mortal appearance back. Mm. Um, I'm on the fence on that one because on the one hand, the whole like here is that that the, it, you can't really undo the curse uh, the the curses that were put on the clans yeah. um, by Cain um, and and in a way through him God but on the other hand I mean considering what happens to the Nosferatu I can see getting their mortal appearance back and obviously he didn't just get it back there's a, a lot of things going on with with how long he has it and what he has to do to keep it but I can see this as being a really, really 
good way to tempt someone where you can get a lot of interesting role-playing out of saying uh, to an Osvatu, look, you could get yeah. your appearance back. All you have to do is, is this um, is, is this deal. So I don't really know if I agree with it or not. Yeah. Uh, so I want to ask our, our listeners what their opinion uh, is on it. I want to hear what, what you think about it. Yeah, it's it's a really good point because uh, it's it's one of those classical just sign the dotted line. And and I think it's um, it kind of touches upon a thing that we, we, we've talked about previously. Um, and, and that is that we're do the actual clan weaknesses come from are they actually from Cain and therefore from God or is it just for example the the Bali they claim that they're the ones behind the uh, the rage of the Bruja uh, and and I feel that personally that that feels kind of weak that that other vampires can uh, can kind of put weaknesses on other clans and the Asamites are supposed to, I, I don't remember yeah. who's, who's supposed to do that to them but it's also supposed to be someone else uh, so so I, I, and I think that might be a problem with just the, the whole thing going on for such a long time so that they kind of forgotten like okay what did we write in that book eight years ago um, on the other hand <laughs> uh, I I, I kind of think that it could be just as as you say that it could be a really good way to to kind of um, uh, tempt or uh, tempt a Nosferatu, uh, but I think when it comes down to it, if if you're going to use it as as a plot point, uh, or or even allow uh, a Nosferatu to to get rid of their uh, uh, their uh, <laughs> ugliness, basically. Uh, it should come as a prize, and as you mentioned, that the, the Nosferatu in this uh, in the monastery has to do a lot of bad things, and and so you could, like, if you're going to use it, or, or rather, how I would use it is to to just twist it, um, like like yeah, you you get your uh, or, or you appear appear to have gotten your good looks back, but if you look into a mirror, you you still see your your horrid face, or that you. If you don't drink the blood of virgins often enough, you get uh, boils or the, your skin starts to melt or something, or you have to perform more and more vicious deeds, uh, getting closer and closer to the beast, basically, just to keep your appearance. So it's like, yeah, it, it, you, you get his reward, but it's not free. There, there's no such thing as a free lunch. So, so if yeah, you play exactly. into that aspect, you could probably do something really cool with it, uh, and and you could have a redemption arc where the Nosferatu is like, no, I'm going to accept my fate and my visage given by God, and I reject the devil and his uh, fanciness. Uh, so so yeah, you, there's there's all all sorts of opportunities for it. But but yeah, in in general, I agree that it it shouldn't be easy to to get rid of your clan weakness. Yeah, but I also love to hear from from other people in in the Facebooks and stuff like that. So chapter three is the nuts and bolts, the uh, game technical part where you get the cult background, uh, as in game points background, and some discussions on things like disciplines, useful abilities, the blood oath, which we've already touched on, and so on. Like chapter one, this feels a bit basic and introductory, though I think it's a great help for players who might not themselves be good at social manipulation, but who want to play a character that's a cult leader. And it's also nice for both players and storytellers to get an idea of what they can expect out of supernatural effects like disciplines and the blood oath. I can see this chapter being quite useful for a player who wants their character to have a cult uh, or for a storyteller who wants their game to include one or more cults as uh, a central theme. Um, so, yeah, like like you mentioned in the first chapter, I think this is a good one to give to someone who who's not 100% sure on how to go about the whole cult thing and say, well, read this, this should give you some ideas. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and like... Uh... I, I don't know if I would ever play uh, or use this system or, or play in a game where cults were, um, how, do you, how do you put it, kind of like like where where they would need game mechanics in such a way. But Yeah, where but, it's it's point on a character sheet. Yeah, exactly. But but the system that they present is is actually, I, I think it's a really good one. It's it's not too complicated. It, it has... Uh, it covers what needs to be covered, and of course, if if you want to, there's also a simplified version of it. 
um, they have they have this idea of of uh, uh, letting the, the uh, players pool their they, they introduce a new background which is basically cult status or, or cult a uh, cult rating uh, and so if if you uh, if the characters pool or the players pool their their cult background together uh, they can make a really powerful one uh, and and they they kind of warn the storytellers that yeah be careful with this because you could end up with with a really powerful uh, coterie running a really powerful cult, and and I'm just thinking kind of like what what you said back back in the very beginning about uh, generation as a background in that just if if you want this to be a thing for the players that they are a really low generation or that they have. Uh, a really strong cult to begin with, or or if the players are interested in in running a game about their vampires running a cult together, I I would just sit down using these rules as guidelines and like kind of like yeah what what do you want what kind of cult do you want how famous do you want it to be how how big is it and and just workshop something that works with the players rather than just having them spend points on on a character sheet because that's I don't know, it gets kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, you do, however, see here um, something that becomes a thing in the next edition of Dark Ages Vampire, which is uh, the pooling of backgrounds, mm. uh, which there is uh, an entire book dedicated to this concept and, and some more, but but it's a central uh, thing in that book, um, Ride of Princes, which incidentally was the first um book that i ever worked on so oh, it has a special course. place in my yeah, heart and yeah. we'll get to that but but you can see in this that they're already starting to think of some of the ideas that will come up mm. in the next yeah. um in the next yeah. game but i i agree with you like there, there's also because there's so much overlap be, um, between things like cult herd influence contact yeah. allies so i think you can sort of Instead of just saying, "I have, uh, I have a cult," you can, you can, uh, you can represent it with these other backgrounds. In our, in our current Transylvania Chronicles game, our Malkavian is a cult leader, but that's just represented with the amount of influence he has, with the, with the um, herd that he has, and and all these things. Uh, yeah, they, they do talk about that in in the book that it overlaps a bit, but but I completely agree with you that it's it's a bit weird. And it's 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 really just like I mean, if you want to have it as points on a character sheet, that's fine. It's not like we're telling you not to, mm. because obviously we can only discuss how we would would yeah. do things. So for someone who likes to have things codified, I think this this works really well. Yeah. Um, and once again, I I think that their discussion on disciplines and abilities and uh, the blood oath how that can work what you can get out of it what's useful and what's not it's it's really good um to get people to think about it so that you just don't just say well i'm a ventrue with a lot of dominate and presence yeah. i'm going to make a cult and it's not going to be a problem because i have all these powers yeah, because I have, yeah. yeah exactly you can throw a curveball yeah it, it is and uh, and there, there's also a few things that i think doesn't necessarily makes sense because you you have all these different aspects that you can spend your points on and and one of them is basically if your your cult is made up out of just mortals or if you also have uh like ghouls and and vampires and sorcerers in them and the highest level like if the the best or supposedly best thing is if your cult is made up entirely of vampires and or sorcerers and and i'm thinking like is is that necessarily a, a good thing all the time is it always better because if if all of your cults uh, or your if all of your cultists are vampires it's going to be a lot harder feeding them uh, and it's going to be a lot harder hiding your cult and it's going to be a lot harder like spreading your cult because none of you can go out in the day and you you won't have all this kind of Renfield henchmen who can run around doing things for you because all of you need to sleep during the day uh, unless you have a sorcerer and we all know you can't trust sorcerers <laughs> but but it, yeah. it, it's kind of like 
Yeah, I vampires are more powerful, but but is it always better? It's it's kind of a weird thing to focus on when it comes to the kind of of what is good in in a cult. Yeah, um, we end with a four page in character letter from what seems to be a monk, since he refers to uh, he signs it as brother something or other, uh, and the letter is addressed to what might be the Pope, given how he. Uh, he starts the letter. Uh, this monk has learned a little something about vampires, and he talks about them as if they were a cult. This, these, these four pages, they feel a bit tacked on, like there was a page count that had to be reached, yeah. and this was done to fill it out. Uh, and there are a few inaccuracies. Uh, firstly, the monk talks about adjudicating witch burnings, yeah. uh, but witch burnings didn't happen in the Middle Ages. In fact, uh, throughout most of the Middle Ages, the church's position was that witches didn't really exist um yeah. it's it's more complicated than that but but no there weren't any witch burnings yeah you, you in, did in burn the, the middle uh, ages you, and, and this was very this was very rare but you you did burn uh unrepentant heretics uh yeah which again going back to joan of arc uh, and please correct me if i'm wrong listeners but but she she wasn't burned because she was uh an, an enemy of, of uh, uh, England or anything. She she was burned because she was considered an unrepenting heretic because she had worn uh, at occasions uh, male clothes, which was a big no-no for women. Uh, yeah, she was basically acting uh, as a man yeah. when she was a woman, yeah. which was bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, he also talks about some people not being the savages or barbarians one would find in Spain, Ireland, or the eastern parts of Germanic lands. Uh, now, we've mentioned a few times that Spain didn't exist back then. Mm. And also, Iberia was considered a very civilized land, yeah. having been Christian for centuries. And while the Muslims of Al-Andalus were certainly infidels, they were seen as civilized rather than barbarians. So, sure, you at this point, you might still find people you'd consider barbaric in in Ireland and certainly in in the East, but but not in what would become Spain. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I, I wasn't really a fan of of this. Uh, there there was a, a few interesting things about the start of the Inquisition, but yeah, it just felt rather clumsily written. Maybe. Yeah, I I, I agree that uh, like like you said, it's it's fun that they kind of hint at the start of the Inquisition, uh, but but all in all, it it felt kind of tacked on. What I do like, however, there is there is a small uh, thing on uh, on the second uh, page of the letter where it talks about what these vampires call themselves. Or, or first, that uh, the, uh, the author uh, says that he learned that they call themselves vampire, uh, and then also that in uh, he he's heard about the shadows in northern Italy in and in, in and Spain and La Sombra means the shadow in Spanish yeah. uh, and, and the Nosfer bears of plague in the Easterlands and uh, even warlocks and it kind of, it's kind of those things that yeah would, would people like at, at what point in your vampiric introduction do you get a list of all of the other clans and how do you refer to them <laughs> and, and especially mortals like if they hear just the shadow they, they wouldn't necessarily um consider it to be uh, a name especially not a name of a group uh, but but again it's it's kind of this um, I, I like it when when uh, things written in character kind of reflects the knowledge level of the person who's supposed to be writing it so that's that was actually a nice touch I think. yeah that I, yeah it, it gave a good idea of of how uh, a mortal especially like an, and a somewhat educated religious mortal might, interpret uh, the 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 um, what little knowledge they gain of vampires to begin with mm. um so time to judge this book on our two criteria and i'll start with history there isn't much direct history in this book and there are a few slip-ups but i mean there's no like seriously bad history here um there's just not much of it <laughs> Yeah, I I kind of agree with that. It's there there's a few things, but but all in all, it's it, it's more a book focused on uh, vampiric stuff. Uh, of course, there there is opportunities to include uh, historical stuff, like we mentioned that local cults were really a thing. Uh, I do, and and this is actually a thing that I thought that that you would pick up, kind of that that you mentioned that 
uh, that guilds could actually be a good place to to start a cult, and they kind of do oh, that yeah, with, yeah. with the Freemasons. Uh, so yeah, I just thought I, I've talked about that so much. I wanted <laughs> yeah, okay. I wanted to try and restrain myself. Yeah, yeah. but I, yeah, I'm not yeah. going to get you started on if, if that's how you do. But, <laughs> but yeah, there, there are some some really good ideas in this book, um, and and also a few kind of like they they mention and they hint at things to come. Like for example, at at the end of of the chapter uh, that is written about the. Uh, clans and and uh, vampiric clans and and cults or vampiric cults rather and and cults how they differ from clan to clan it ends up with uh it turns out the person writing the letter is is a caitiff uh, and how they would uh, would would kind of start cults and how useful they can be to uh to caitiffs and and it was kind of like whoa sudden caitiff appears because we we haven't really had them around previously uh, so I, I guess it could be kind of an, an acquired taste, if, if or that that you could be on the fence if, if you like the catifs just appearing, or or if it's something you like. But knowing what's coming in 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 the next couple of centuries, I think it's a, it's a good and interesting way to kind of start off the whole thing um, with with that yeah. appearing now. Um, yeah. So as a gaming book, I really see this as one you only need if you're a completist or if you really, really want cults to be a part of your game. And even then, you might not actually need this. Uh, this is one of the books we have covered that gave me the least ideas for a game. Uh, but I'm not saying it's bad, just, well, I think maybe situational is the word I want to use about it. Yeah, I, I think that might be a good word for it as well. It's uh, I'm, I'm just checking the... It, it was $15 back when it was released. So I'm guessing that's kind of in the mid-high end of things. I can't really yeah. remember. Uh, and, and it's it's 92 pages long. Yeah, so uh, I, I agree that it's, it's probably not something that I would buy, but if... If like if this is the thing that I want to do, uh, and uh, and I thought I, w- I would enjoy doing more than once, then then it's really useful. As as we've gone through, it's it has all the kind of checklists and and boxes to tick and and everything. So so I'm thinking that if if you read through this and and kind of do it, it's I I don't know. It it almost kind of feels like the uh the kind of introductory chapters in how to make your uh how, how do i make a player character and it's like well you start by buying or rolling for stats and then you do this and then you do this and yeah and the, exactly and at first everyone uses those chapters and they're really useful and and because it's it's really handy but after your like third character you already know how to do it so you you're never gonna look in that chapter again and I feel that a lot of the things in this book is at least the, the mechanics of it. Again, there's some really useful mechanics and some handy advice. Uh, and I really liked how they presented the different blood oaths in the different clans. But like, yeah, if, if I've done it enough times, I'm, I'm going to know it already. And in a way, that's good. But on the other hand, do I really want to spend that amount of money on it back then? Yeah, yeah, that's the same thing I'm like. Okay, so it's it's uh, only nine dollars as a PDF now, mm. but it's one of those where I would say, if you've listened to what what we've talked about here, you should probably get an idea of whether or not this is something you'd want if you don't already have it, uh, and whether the it's it's value for money. Like I'm glad that I have it because I'm an utter completionist <laughs> with these things. Yeah. But it's not a book that I think I'm going to be pulling off my shelf uh, and reading again anytime soon even if I end up uh, doing a game where cults are an important thing, just because, uh, like like you said, yeah, I've done it so many times that, that I don't need it anymore. Yeah. But once again, I just want to say I don't think it's a bad book. I think this is more... This is not necessarily a book that should have come towards the end of the game line, is probably what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So... Uh, next time we're looking at the last book in the original Dark Ages line, Bitter Crusade, um, which is a scenario book, and I remember playing it, but I don't remember that much about it. I'm going to try to jog my memory for when we record it. 
After that, we're going to take some time to get Season 2 ready since the core book for the second edition of Dark Ages is a bit of a big one. Mm. However, we have some side quest stuff coming up, so you won't be without us for the entire time we need to get ready. Um, and with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Uh, no, I'm, I'm fine. Uh, just thanking all our listeners and our patrons. Uh, don't forget for, for the patrons uh, to, to check out the special episode. And if that's the, let us know if that's the kind of stuff that, that you enjoy and want to see more of. Uh, so we'll make more similar stuff. Otherwise, we'll try something else and see if you like that more. Exactly. And so it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye.